Welcome to the Big Fan Theory. Rowena, welcome to the Big Van Theory. Thanks, Bob. It's lovely to be here. Great to have you here. I always like to start by asking people in 30 seconds or less, can you tell us who you are, what you do, and why you're qualified to talk about what we're going to talk about? Okay. So I'm Rowena Kalouas. I'm one of the co-founders of Denomination um, and also the CEO. Um, Denomination is a drinks specialist agency um, and we essentially design drinks in, in wine, beer, spirits and cider in terms of the brand identity and packaging design. Perfect. Nice and succinct. So uh, let's just dive straight in. This, is, this was an exam question from 2014, uh, but it's one that I think that, that's still very much relevant. What matters more? What's in the bottle or what's on the bottle? And does the wine industry take packaging seriously enough? Right. Well, uh, I, I would say definitely both. Um, we always say to our clients, we're going to take care of the first sale and you need to take care of every other sale after that. So, you know, we can get consumers to buy the bottle by having really um, engaging and memorable and appealing packs, but the, the wine has to deliver. So it has to deliver to, um, to what the consumer has um, imagined is going to be in the bottle, what the label is promising is going to be in the bottle um, in terms of quality and, and, and style. Um, and and the, the winemaker um, needs to be able to deliver that. Otherwise, that second sale will never come. Um, do the packaging industry take, uh, sorry, wine industry take packaging seriously? I think that is um, increasingly so. I'd say a decade ago or more, um, we were still up against clients who really felt that the wine was the most important thing and consumers um, really, once they bought a, a wine brand, they wouldn't be influenced by the packaging. I think the amount of data um, from various research companies, including Wine Intelligence and Nielsen, have shown that consumers are heavily influenced by the label. And so, and so I think winemakers have discovered that actually, you know, they ignore packaging design at their, at their peril. What kind of purchasing cues do you think people go for or have you found people go for? How do you find them? How do you work out what they are and how do you decide which ones to use? Uh, it, we really um, dig deep into who that consumer profile is per, um, per brand and per project and that really then tells us what cues we need to have. So, you know, if we're looking at a, a consumer who is um, what we might call an engaging explorer, they are they are an audience, and that's a wine intelligence um, consumer portrait. They're an audience that's that's really confident and and into adventure and exploration, as the name um, um, indicates. And so you can be a little bit more adventurous with the packaging design. So you can actually push them um, quite a bit further than, say, you could do with someone who was just very, like my parents, who are very into um, traditional-looking packaging. So it, it depends on which audience you're talking to and also what that what the heritage of the brand is. So, you know, if you've got a brand like Penfolds, which I've worked on for sort of 25 years, you know, you have to 
take the evolutions of penfolds very, very carefully because there's a massive audience that is is behind that brand and that is very loyal to that brand. It's kind of like changing the Australian flag when you change anything. So we're we're making sure that we're keeping those packaging cues of of tradition and reassurance and credibility. But we're also able to just flex when we when we talk to very high involved consumers for penfolds who are fine if we really you know push boundaries like for instance what we did on G3 and that was to put you know penfolds on the top and a huge big calligraphic G3 on a crest and nothing else on the actual front label. So we really we really dig deep into who that consumer is in order to work out which packaging cues we, we pull. So can you take us through the design process? How does it start if someone comes to you as a brand new wine, either brand or label? Uh, how do you come up with it? Is it just a question of sitting down with a pencil? Or is, is there a, a more um, a more uh, a formal process of doing it? Well, it's a bit of a combination of both, really. So the most important thing um, to start with is, is to get the brief right. So we spend a lot of time with clients really talking through um, their brand and their story um, and their winemaking story to try and work out what is unique about that particular brand, about that particular wine. Because once we find that unique um, uh, story, we can then design to that to really kind of um, explode that story um, in various ways uh, and and that's that's really like the 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 key to us because what we're trying to do is not just come up with pretty pictures we're actually trying to come up with something that is really meaningful to to the origins of that brand or that or that wine so say a brand like tread softly which is a um, as the name would um, would say, it's a, it's a sustainably produced wine. Um, it's naturally lower in alcohol. So it kind of plays to um, consumers who want to look after themselves and want to look after the planet. Um, we actually came up with that idea in our original sort of strategy session of trying to work out what what was what was making this wine different from everyone else. And it was this idea that this wine would actually talk to the values that, that um, the millennial consumer had. Um, and so, so once you kind of got that, then, then the ideas can kind of bounce off that because you've got this really solid foundation. And so our designers do a number of things. Some of them work with pencil, some of them go straight onto the Mac. Others go and look at art galleries and we've got huge libraries in, in every one of our studio. We, we find books on all sorts of different things really inspiring for design. So not just on other wine labels, but, you know, what's happening in interior design in Paris, you know, what, what's happening in graffiti art in New York. And so we're sort of looking at all sorts of different kind of um, inspiration to, to then, you know, come up with a range of ideas and then the process internally is that is that um, we review all of our work a number of times um, with um, with some senior people within the business and we're always looking at you know what was that original idea what was that original client brief and making sure that we're really answering to that brief 
um, and then and then we present to the client and, and then it goes on from there. So the client will choose one, choose a particular concept and we'll do some development and as it goes through the process, we go to sort of finalisation and, and preparing files for the printer and off it goes to be printed and, and come to life on a bottle. Now, how do you start with things like legal information that you have to put on it do you design the label and then figure out how to fit that on or are there or do you, <laughs> or do you start with um, a format that we have to have key information and then kind of work around it yeah we each region obviously has its different mandatories that it has to have on on the back label uh, we have got to a place which is fantastic globally where you know, we can use the front label mainly as graphics. We don't have to have too much information. Obviously, um, Canada is an exception to that where you have to have um, any language apart from your brand name in, in both um, both French and English. Um, however, for, for most of the world, the, the front label is, is okay in terms of um, what we, you know, what we can do on it. The, the mandatories tend to come into the back label. Um, we have... Um, templates that we use depending on the country, depending on the client. Each client has different levels of mandatories that they use. You know, when you're working with some of the big uh, wine producers, they might have their own um, particular symbols that they like to use. Um, and, and so it really depends on, you know, what the client is and, and what the region that you're selling to is. We try and make sure that those mandatories are um, really nicely designed because although they are, you know, legal information that we have to have, we also want them to look as though that they're crafted and refined and cared for so that they're not just like this horrible sort of dump on, on the back label. Um, and we also have to make sure, you know, in, in certain regions we have to have, you know, varietals of a certain proportion to a brand name. So all of those things, you know, because we're wine specialists. Um, we have a whole series of templates that we use to make sure that what we're sending back to the client is is compliant with TTB or whatever the authorities are in that particular region. How do you incorporate different cultural factors into it? So the classic one, uh, the, the example that people use is that when you're doing a wine brand in China, if you make the label red, more people will like it, which is obviously a massive oversimplification. But um, how do you aim it at different cultural groups? Do you have focus groups or do you uh, work on market research? How do you incorporate that? Um, we use wine intelligence quite heavily um, in some regions um, and they have they're able through their portraits to, um, to specify, you know, what, um, which particular brands that target audience might buy in that particular region. We don't tend to use them for labelled designs because um, uh, we feel it's a, a little bit too general. Um, but, uh, but because we have um, offices in three regions, so in, in Europe, in the Americas and Australia, and we do a lot of work for Asia from the Australian office. We have a pretty good understanding through years and years of experience as, as to how those regions operate and what cues work, particularly in, in different markets. Um, for China, for example, uh, yeah, the red and gold is, is an interesting one because that's um, certainly what people used to think about, you know, 10 years ago when you were marketing to, to the Chinese market. However, you know, um, as the Chinese middle class um, grow and grow and grow, they are, the, their trajectory in terms of their 
um, wine sophistication and knowledge has been extraordinary. So they really do have a good knowledge. Now, when they're buying Western uh, products, um, and that will include uh, wine products that are produced outside of China, they're actually looking for those wines to, to be credible to where they're from. So they, they want to see a French wine label looking like a French wine label, not looking like a Chinese version of a French wine label. Um, and so too with Australia and, and the States and, and, and other um, wine producing regions around the world. So you do have to be careful of, of generalisms, but equally you have to be mindful of, of the sort of packs that work well in particular countries um, versus others. And certainly, you know, the work that we've done in America has proven to us how, you know, you really have to uh, nuance the packaging designs for the states to really appeal to a, to a broad um, audience that, that is a different kind of pack idea or, or um, crafting than, than what you would say for the UK. Now, you work with all sorts of different drinks categories, and there's been different packaging design and formats in uh, certainly spirits and RTDs and other things. Do you think the wine industry has been a bit slow to follow suit? Uh, is that a fair assertion? Should it follow? And and what do you see sort of coming in the future? Uh, so, yes, I do think that the wine industry has been a bit slow and, and should be following suit. I would say in defence of the industry, however, you know, we don't have the margins like spirits businesses do. Certainly we do at the very top luxury end, but but on everyday um, wines, we just don't have that, that level of margin. So there hasn't been the ability to invest in uh, bespoke bottles and, and other um, other forms as much as um, other categories have been able to. Having said that, we have seen, you know, wine in cans being very successful in different markets where we, we see um, that there are, um, there's a lot of investment being made in terms of sustainability and how that has impacted form. Um, we, we haven't yet seen the uptake in wine. It will come, I'm sure. Um, but wine is, we have these twofold um, issues. One is the margin and the second is the actual product. And we know um, that, you know, any vessel containing wine needs to be airtight. You know, it can't, it needs to be able to ensure that the wine quality is not going to, the wine's not going to suffer light shock. And there's, there's a whole lot of different things that happen with wine that don't happen with whiskey or vodka or gin. So, um so moving outside of the traditional uh, vessels like glass bottle, bag in box and can has been challenging, let's say. But the, the benefit of doing something that's different, and I'm going to just use bespoke bottle as an example because you don't have to go wild, but the, the benefit of using a bespoke bottle is that you really can very quickly build this um, this memorability for consumers that when they see that bottle, they immediately understand that what that brand is. And, and you know, there, there have been um, brands in the past that have done this um, really well. Um, and they're certainly in the spirits category. They do it exceptionally well because, you know, when you see that tapered bottle, you think of Johnny Walker. When you see, you know, a short round black bottle, you think of Hendrix Gin. So, um, it's it's that real shortcut for consumers, and, and when they when they instantly recognise a brand 
it gives them this real sense of security and confidence because uh, this is something that I know and and I and and the more I see it, the more I will trust it. And so, you know, a, a bespoke bottle design or a different form is a is a really good shortcut for increasing that that ability to to aid memorability. Is the design process different for different drinks? Obviously, spirits will have bigger margins and I presume different briefs but is the do you approach it from a different way or is everything unique no the design process is exactly the same um it doesn't matter which which category where we're designing for it's it's the same process you know the brief has to be really clear the strategy has to be really clear what that brand stands for has to be really clear and then you can create um, whatever. So obviously the inputs are different. So when we're talking about gin, we're talking about different competitive sets. We're talking about um, different occasions, different ways that consumer buys a wine. So oh, sorry, buys gin. So all of that information comes in that initial strategic phase where we work out well what is that core idea and what are the key messages that we need to communicate. But essentially, the steps of the process are exactly the same. You know, work out the brief, work out the positioning, um, come up with the the ideas in the USP, and then and then um, create the ideas uh, for the pack design and the brand identity. Which designs do you, are you most proud of personally? <laughs> Oh, that's like choosing me to ask me to choose my favourite child. Yeah, well, you can um, do that too. If you... <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm sure neither of them will be impressed with the answer. Um, Trade softly that I just mentioned before um, is a is a great one because I think we've been able to um, prove that having a, a brand with a sustainable footprint can be really commercially successful. So with Tread Softly, we've done sustainability in a number of ways. We've done it through pack design. We've done it through winemaking. We've also, um, also our campaign from the very beginning was called Raise a Forest with Your Glass. And that was with every case of wine sold, um, Tread Softly would plant a tree. And as at March, uh, mid-March, so a month ago, it's close to 200,000 trees within two years. So phenomenal success it's also won loads of design awards which is obviously you know hugely gratifying for us as as designers but the most important thing for us is is both the commercial success of that brand for for our client but also the giving back um to to the world in terms of um this uh, example of a, of a truly sustainable brand and, and what it can do. So I think that one's that one's pretty cool. Um, I'm I am also very proud that I have been associated with the Penfolds brand for so long. Um, I I have worked with Penfolds even before I started this business, and uh, I'm <laughs> I've been checking off Penfolds gift boxes this afternoon. So I'm still working on that brand. It's a beautiful brand. It has so much depth. And we've been able to do lots of different and interesting things with that brand, understanding how it works and understanding how much we can flex uh, without losing what it is to be um, a, a Penfolds wine. So that's a really exciting one for me. Uh, 
And then I think maybe one closer to home for you guys would be um, Dow's Port. So we redesigned that a couple of years ago. Uh, it was a delightful project to do. Uh, Dow's is a beautiful, beautiful brand. And we had to um, modernise uh, Dow's without losing what was so beautiful about the brand. So we did different things to the packaging. You know, we screen printed, we foiled um, some of the branding on the bottle to make it really bespoke. We increased the branding. Um, and we, we spent a lot of time just really detailing those labels and making sure that consumers would understand the difference between 10, 20, 30 and 40 year old uh, port. It also gave me the ability to, to um, go to Porto many times, which is my second favourite city in the world. Um, it's just the most gorgeous city and a beautiful family, this Imington family. And it was, it was just a delight to work on that project. Have you ever been asked to do any copycat type brands or have you ever done much in the way of private label for people where they want to? So we've had quite a few in the UK supermarkets, which look suspiciously like Casalera del Diablo and Villa Maria. And we've also just had a big, um, there's been a big court case about Caterpillar and birthday cakes, which has gone completely out yes, of proportion. <laughs> um, I mean, as a designer, has anyone ever come to you and said, uh, can you do this for me? Yeah, look, when we were, when we were smaller, um, we were asked to do copycats, which I, I guess I found both am amusing and disillusioning in equal parts. Um, our response has always been to explain to the clients that that, that, that brand already exists. It, it exists in reality. It exists in consumers' minds. So if you're launching something that's similar, you, you're bound to lose out on memorability and you've also failed to grasp an opportunity to help your own unique story to consumers. So in my opinion, copying is just mudding the waters and not creating a clear and, and ownable pathway for your brand. Now, with the caterpillars aside, because that's Audi and Audi have, you know, that's their sort of corporate mantra. So I'm talking about things outside of Audi. Um, and in terms of private label, private labels are really challenging one. I think it, one of the key issues with private label is that there's often not really a story to tell. There's nothing that's kind of real or differentiated or a, or a wine idea or an owner or a vineyard. Like there's kind of nothing. And so when, when those brands look like a made-up brand, it's because they are. But like there's nothing sort of real or credible to, to hang on to. Um, so... It is challenging to design a private label that feels really authentic and unique. And, and we actually uh, took a business decision not to, to design private labels. Uh, we, we felt it was a bit of a conflict for our, for our clients who were trying to sell to those same retailers. And also it's, it's, um, it's just not particularly re rewarding from a design perspective to try and, you know, we're, we're in the business of building brands and building brands for the long term. And, and private label doesn't really give us that opportunity. So conversely, how do you feel and deal with it when people copy your designs? So Penfolds obviously is massively um, fraudulent around the world with Pinfolds and God knows what else. Is this uh, down to you or is this purely a brand owner thing? Have you ever had any sort of big legal cases as a result? Or um, have you ever had to have words with another design company? <laughs> uh, 
yes, a couple of times I have sent a, a note, quite a polite note, but a firm note to to maybe suggest that you know the design is about um, uh, clever ideas and your own ideas, and uh, copying someone is really against the sort of ethos and philosophy of what design is all about. Um, I think it's I think it's just really shameful practice um, for me, and it's kind of. I don't know, it just feels lazy. You know, if you can't think of your own idea, you probably shouldn't be in the business. And uh, But in terms of the legalities of suing um, uh, other designers and other businesses, it, it, that's mainly our clients who, who take that up. They do get incensed by it. And certainly you'll have seen many legal cases in China uh, with, with copycats of PEMFOLDs. Unfortunately, that is a nature of, of the market. Um, China, to their credit, are doing a lot to try and stamp it out. You know, they've got these bottle smashing exercises where, you know, that consumers in restaurants are encouraged to smash the bottle at the end so that it can't be refilled and relabeled. Um, we have all sorts of different security technologies in, in our expensive labels that go to China, not just PEMFOLDs, but, but other ones, so that we can track them. We have, you know, NFC chips. We, we do all sorts of things to make sure that, you know, it's, it's not being, um, it, yeah, it's not being copied. It, it, it's, a, it's a very, very challenging one to, to try and manage. Can, how much can you tell us about the security technologies in your labels? Or is that hush-hush? Um, I'm not going to tell you everything because I'd be giving away <laughs> very big secrets. But I think um, some of the NFC technology that we've been using that we've been able to publicise on, on brands like Taylor's Wakefield, The Legacy, um, has been really effective. So, you know, that NFC chip is on a strip that goes over the um, screw cap. Um, when it goes over the screw cap, it... Um, you, you can then uh, scan it and it will tell you, you know, where it's been, um, where it's been bottled and when it arrived. You know, like you can do the whole kind of tracking. Um, it will also tell you whether that um, it has been tampered with. So it is a really good way of securing the bottle. We've also done a similar thing with Seppeltsfield. Um, so, yeah, that, that's also been really helpful as well. Just one thing I wanted to ask, in terms of technology on labels, where do you see it going? So we've seen AR with the Living Wine Labels app and a few things. We've seen QR codes. What are people bringing to the table now? What are you being asked to do and what do you see happening in the future? Well, I, I actually think QR codes are going to, be a, are going to have a sort of renaissance. Um, obviously, before COVID, you know, QR codes were on our labels 10 years ago. No one really did anything with them because they didn't quite know what to do. But given um, COVID has really increased the importance of QR codes, especially in Australia, like we use them now for everything, every cafe, everywhere you go, you have to um, scan and sign in. So it's becoming second nature to, to use a QR code. And I think the benefits are that you are able to get a lot of additional information um, from a QR code or an AR that, that you know, you you can't just get from a two-dimensional label. Um, I, I gave a seminar uh, last week about sustainability and how we can really um, take advantage of those existing technologies like AR, but potentially change them from a platform of sort of entertainment 
to a platform of information. So winemakers will be able to have their video footage or um, whatever they whatever story they want to tell about how the wine is made, the sustainability of the wine, like, you know, the carbon footprint, whatever they want, they can actually use that technology and it doesn't just have to be, you know, moving images of convicts. It can actually be, you know, really serious and informative and, and interesting data as well. Now, when you come, when you do things with sustainability, do you have to take in, how do you approach that and quantify that? Do you include stuff like the paper and ink and whatever, or is that down to the producer? Uh, no, that's, that is uh, down to us and the producer combined and the supplier as well. So there are various aspects to sustainability when we're thinking about packaging design. So obviously the paper stock is really important. Um, so, you know, is it from an FSC forest? Is it, uh, is it um, does it have any recycled content? Does it have any waste content in there? But also, you know, what does it have a lining? You know, is that lining plastic? Well, that's then going to reduce the recyclability of it. So there are lots of other technologies that are coming through. Um, uh, UPM Raffle Pack are doing some really amazing things uh, with their with their liners so that they're not plastic. Um, and uh, you know, e even you know what what grammage of the um, of the film are you using um, uh, for, for the labels? So, you know, are you using PET 30? Could you drop down to P23? In the UK, they're dropping down to even PET 19. So all of those things have a have an effect on the sort of, you know, sustainability outcome of, of your packaging. Um, we also look at bottles, bottle weights. Um, we look at uh, um, glues used on shipping cartons. Um, the amount of ink, you know, uh, is it is it using organic ink, soy inks, mineral inks? How many additives are, are being used? If it's a short run, could we get better efficiencies if we're using um, high speed digital rather than the traditional offset press? Because if you imagine inks, when you use an offset press, you've got gallons of ink just sitting in the troughs. And once you finish that label run, you essentially have to tip out the ink. Whereas with digital, you know, it's 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 basically a CMYK process, so that's four colours, and that just keeps on going. So you don't have any of that ink wastage that obviously then increases um, the sustainability output as well. So there are lots of different things that we can do um, and that we do do when we're advising our clients um, and suppliers on how to make uh, a brand's packaging more sustainable. Cool. Well, just one final one before I let you go. I always like to end cool. on an optimistic note. Uh, what do you think <laughs> are the real causes for optimism in the world of drinks design? Uh, well, I think uh, I think there's. I mentioned it at the very beginning that we feel like uh, brand owners and, and, and wineries are really starting to understand the importance of packaging design and they're getting a lot braver and more willing to stick their neck out and be more individual. And I think that comes down to just a better understanding of the importance of branding. Um, and, and that's really exciting for us because when, when clients are on board and when they understand the power of, of 
packaging design, then they're really they're more willing to take risks and and uh, they get more excited about the benefits that flow through, the, through to their bottom line after that. So I'm I'm really excited about um, about that part of um, our clients' development. Um, I also think that um, post COVID, uh, you know, we hope we can see that there is there is a greater confidence within our industry in in the three regions that we operate in, um, and that is going to you know obviously have a big impact on our drinks clients in terms of. Um, you know what they're going to do with innovation and and um, and you know evolving their brands. So exciting times ahead. Perfect. Well, that's a lovely note to end on. Thank you so much for your time. That's been amazing. Um, and yeah, some brilliant stuff in there. I think for everyone, everyone listening. Um, yeah. So thank you. Uh, thank you once again. That's a pleasure, Bob. Lovely to chat again. Yeah. You too. Cheers. Thank you. Bye.